Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Land Development Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Glick. And if this is your first time joining, the show is meant to highlight stories from land developers and others associated with the industry. And I'm excited today to have on the show the founder of Landvest Development, Charles Covey. Charles, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. And so where I want to start with our conversation today is really around your origin story, how you got into land development, and whether it was something that you were already in the construction industry before coming into it, or if you had a completely different uh, path to get into land development, because I'm always really interested in how someone gets into it, whether it's a, a family business or it's something where you just got into it through a certain certain path. So maybe take us through how you ended up at uh, with starting Landvest. Yeah, for sure. It's a fascinating story. And even as I tell it sometimes, it's like, wow, it's amazing how this all how this all happened. As a kid, I was always fascinated with building things. And I lived on a farm, grew up on a small town farm that had cattle and uh, and I, and uh, row crop agriculture. And we had to build stuff. If something was broken or we needed a new barn, we just figured it out. And so always had to be handy and building things. So it was good with my hands. My dad taught me well. Um, I got my work ethic from him. And when I was 16, I had an opportunity to go work with a family friend on a framing crew building houses. And I just thought this was the coolest thing I had ever done. We were homeschooled, so we had the flexibility. I literally just didn't do school for was probably four or five months and learned the framing trade and just went and framed houses. And what a cool opportunity. And that was my that was my real official foray into construction and understanding how that works and the parts and pieces and reading plans. And I was just enamored with it. Absolutely loved it. Funny story about that. So I, you know, you start out, they don't give you the nail gun the first day. In fact, you got to kind of work your way up. So, you know, I have to use a hammer and they put me on the saw and I'm cutting boards and those kind of things, learning how to use a tape measure pretty quickly. And they finally upgrade me to the nail gun. And I'm just, I think I'm big shit, right? I'm, I, I'm shooting the nail gun now and I'm just like, you know, walking along, walking along the top plate, nailing things in. And I think I'm a big, a big thing. And then I shoot myself in the foot, bury a three and a half inch framing nail all the way flush with my boot. So I get demoted off the nail gun, have to work my way back up. And that's one of my, one of my first lessons in construction, you know, is really just be careful with the nail gun. So, um, the construction process from there was really about, I was so enamored with construction and seeing these, these, these buildings just appear from nothingness, just because a bunch of men got out there and just worked really hard and it just appeared. And, uh, and I wanted to dive into that process and understand it better and learn about it. And that's been my whole career really is just my, just my, my never ending curiosity with construction. And it's even that way today, anywhere that I go, I was traveling recently uh, in a different, in a different city. And I was just looking at cranes and understanding how these jobs were going together. And, you know, what's the, what's the site plan? How did they, how are they logistically getting this concrete pour done in the middle of this downtown area? And I just, I'm a construction nerd and I just absolutely love it. So, so back to the framing story, as I, as I go to college, um, now I have opportunities to, to do different kinds of businesses. So I start a small business uh, doing apartment complex rehabs. Uh, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't the one providing the money. I was just doing the work. We were replacing siding and windows and trim and doors. So I hired a few guys and learned, how, learned a lot about business. And then uh, in 2008, things got pretty tough for a lot of us, uh, myself included. So I took a job with a large general contractor in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And they were building schools and a lot of really large projects at that time. They had a lot of backlog. So I built some great projects and learned about the, com- the world of commercial construction and absolutely loved it and, uh, and had, had some experience that I couldn't have gotten any other way. 
and I was always looking for a different opportunity to get back on my own. Just I always have loved entrepreneurship and working for myself and not having that that uncapped potential and that uncapped ceiling. So for me, that was huge. And uh, I, when I found that opportunity to get back on my own, I, I jumped at it. So start a, a commercial construction business built uh, as a general contractor and then later as a large specialty subcontractor. I built projects all over Texas and uh, had an office in, in Dallas and also in Austin. So grew a big staff and, and really always was trying to just get to that next level of the whole process, right? I start as a framer and I'm trying to move up the chain and, and the developer is just kind of like, he's the guy that's always up there. And I'm just always thinking about, you know, that developer is up there at the top of the food chain. Like I'm still trying to get there. And, uh, and as a, as kind of the linear progression, I'm making money and investing money and doing a, a few real estate deals on my own kind of as a passive or as a, as an active income thing. And I realized, you know, the development spot is that's, that's a good place for me. I really enjoy it. And it's not that far. I'm just right there. I just kind of have to take that next step going from a, a business owner to a different kind of business owner. And so all those things just really added up over a period of years to get me into that developer position and took the plunge and have been doing it ever since. And absolutely, I'm having the time of my life. I, I've never, I've done different things over periods of time. And I've always enjoyed my work, but you know, the last three or four years have just been phenomenal for me and I'm having a blast. Yeah. And you, and it sounds like, so you saw land development as something that you were, you were shooting for. So it's not like it's just, you happen to just get into land development. You you had seen that as something that you were, you know, striving to get to into that industry to be able to do deals and projects in that space. And is that accurate? Is that you yeah, kind of for sure? That? It was just yeah. always moving up the chain, one more step yep. up the food chain, and uh, and it took time to do it. And yeah, I don't I don't know that everybody else has that same path, but for me, it was really yeah. it was really beneficial to have done so many other things in the construction process because now I'm able to converse with people in a way that. You know, anybody that I deal with, I've probably done something very similar to their job before. And yep. that's really beneficial because I have a certain level of empathy and understanding into what their day is like, whether they're a framer or a project manager or on the GC side, or whether they're doing any of these other different processes that, that kind of fall under my purview now as a developer. Yeah. So when you got into that, um, how did you, how did you figure it out? Did you, I mean, was it something that you had other developers you were able to talk to? Was it just made a lot of mistakes? Was it a combination of both? Or I just, I'm always curious how the role of a mentor plays into somebody who's getting into land development for the first time. So I'm just curious how, if you had anything like that in your process. Yeah, well, there's no, uh, there's no playbook. So <laughs> that's a pretty fascinating part about, about development. There's no, there's no college course. There's no, there, there's a lot of other things you can learn you know, through a textbook or through a program and development really isn't, isn't one of those uh, because there's so much nuance and there's so much a, about the negotiation process and, and the creative process of, of site planning and putting things together and then all the financial elements. So yeah, it, it combines a lot of different skill sets. Uh, for me, because of my experience, I have an economics degree, so I'm very comfortable with, with all the financial modeling. It just so happens that my experience over the last 25 years happened to be a very good mix of all the things that are required to do this role. So that worked out, that worked out nicely. Um, I didn't have a mentor that was like a single person I'm trying to copy, but I took bits and pieces from different people that I saw. I'm like, you know what that guy does. That's pretty cool. I like that. But you know, this guy over here, he has his own little twist on it. I want to borrow uh, some of that information too. So pulled bits and pieces from people that I knew. And then a lot of it was diving in and doing a couple of deals and realizing the things that I didn't know. And I might've gotten my teeth kicked in on one or two and, 
and then got a lot better at it. So it, it, that's always something that has excited me about entrepreneurship is going and, and doing a new thing and taking that risk. And, and that's a big part of the development space is you have to have a certain appetite for it. And it is absolutely not for everyone. Um, some people don't have the same appetite for risk. And if that's the case, they definitely shouldn't be in the development space. But that appetite for risk, that's what that's what excites me. That's I get up every morning. I'm like, this is awesome. We get to go, we could go do some stuff today. And and the risk yeah. component is really big for me. I like it. Yeah. Is that uh so when you when you think about like doing deals or looking for the next project that you're gonna do, is that a big part of your day to day right now? Are you are you constantly looking for for new deals or like what percentage of your time would you say you're kind of looking for new deals out there that you might work on in the future versus executing on the existing deals that you already have in flight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is is a good point. I love the new deal process. And so we have to be cautious in our world, like the new shiny thing that's out there. I'm always looking for the new one, the next one. That's, that's the, that's a lot of the joy is in that newness. And you have to be cautious because if you don't get deals done and funded and built, then, you know, the whole machine doesn't keep going. And so it's about a balance. And we, we use some systems internally to balance how the time gets spent. And my staff know they have their roles and we always make sure that we're not focusing too much on what's out there um, and we're getting stuff done today. Conversely, if you don't always have new stuff coming, you'll reach a point where you build out what's in your pipeline and oh crap, because the yeah. time frame on these is so long, you know, two, three, four, five years sometimes. And we always are trying to find ways to shortcut that process and be more efficient, but it's, it's long and that's just yep. the, the nature of it. And so it takes time to build up a pipeline. If you, you know, you say, hey, you know, in uh, in three years, I want to have this pipeline. Well, you got to start now to do that. And you can't look up. I can't look up now and be like, you know what? I really I really need a pipeline. I need more than I have. It's too late. I had to do that two or three years ago. Right. Or maybe a year <laughs> yeah. ago. So it, it's a definitely it's a dance. It's a balance of making sure that you've got stuff that's out there that's happening. You're always looking for that. What's that next that next hot submarket that you need to be participating in? You know, just always trying to be on the cutting edge of seeing the momentum. It's Nobody wants to be first, right? You don't want to take the risk, all the risk. You want to see some momentum happening in a submarket, but at the same time, you don't want to be on the coattails where you're overpaying for for land to get into a, a into a submarket where everybody else is already. Yeah, I feel like that's a big thing right now. Uh, we're recording this on November fifteenth, so I want to give that context for anything we say. Um, but it seems like developers right now are, you know, you would think because the the number of, especially in the single family land development space, there's not a lot of lots selling in certain markets in certain areas. Consumers, mm-hmm. Consumer confidence is a little down right now as interest rates are up. And so th- there's a lot of wait and see that's happening. But mm-hmm. I do feel like developers have to, and a lot of them that I talk to have that mindset right now of saying like, listen, it, they may not be buying right now, but to your point, some of these deals and these projects, just going through the approval process and going through the city and d- depending on who all has to be a part of that, it could take 12 to 18 months. And so if you sit there and wait till consumer confidence gets to where they're going to start buying, you're already going to be way behind. So that's that's kind of interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. You, you always have to be multiple steps ahead. It's a chess game. And that's a part of the joy of it for me is to look at those many steps ahead and see what is a market going to do and you don't want to you don't want to be reactionary. You want to be so proactive, many many steps proactive, a year or two proactive in the process, and that's fun. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about maybe some of your early projects that you took on. Um, is there any any project specifically that stands out, whether it was your first one that you did as a developer or maybe just a project that was your favorite um, up to this point that you could tell us a little bit about? Yeah, there's a couple in the beginning and it, it always goes back to the land acquisition piece. And you know, our company being called Landvest, it's, it really all goes back to my passion for the land itself. And some people are more passionate about the vertical portion. Some people are more passionate about maybe making the dollars at the end. And that for me is not the deal. It's about the land acquisition and the, and the touch that we get to have on this product that we're producing and what, we, what the land looks like after we're done. And that's something I take really seriously. It's something I'm very passionate about. So the, the first couple of real estate projects that I was involved in, they were very simple, very stripped down, basic, like buy a piece of property, you know, send my guys out there. We do some improving and, you know, clear some brush and build some stuff and, you know, uh, essentially a flip, if you will. And those were, they were just beautiful to see the the property you could, you could with, with effort and vision, you could turn a piece of land into something really stunning. And that is still what I see, even though we're doing projects in the hundreds of millions of dollars now, it's still this, that's still what I see. I still see taking something that looks like this thing and elevating it into a thing that looks like this other thing. And that's the fun part for me. So all of our early projects were like that, just very simple. You know, they were farm and ranch flips or they were land, small land subdivides. And then we just kind of gradually eased into the process. And I realized the the brain drain and the effort on, you know, a five or $6 million deal versus a hundred million dollar deal wasn't that much different. It wasn't, it wasn't in proportion to the dollars. And so I realized, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to do all this effort. Let's do big projects because there's a lot more at the end. And so that's been, uh, you know, that, and then again, there's more risk involved and all these other factors, but, but for me, it's about doing bigger projects and we've just gradually, gradually done bigger and bigger projects as we went. Nice. What do you have, uh, I guess on the horizon as you're starting to look out into the future, as far as projects and things of that nature, um, are you, Staying, uh, I guess we never really talked about the types of projects that you you do at this point. But are you staying pretty consistent with the types of projects that you're continuing to work on, or do you have any other? Um, not trying to give you to get you to give away trade secrets or anything, but are there oh, yeah. any other things? Any I'm other things? To, yeah, yeah, that you're working I'm on. To talk about it for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't have many secrets. I feel like <laughs> you know, a lot of our secret sauce is what we do in relationships and in the vision that we have for projects, and so. You know the the nuts and bolts of buying and selling property. I don't feel like that's you know anything that we do dramatically different than anybody else. Although I think we have some skill set in, in acquisitions and finding the right locations. A lot of what we've done has had to be be very cognizant of what's going on in the market. There's it's a challenging time in real estate, and there's no you know the facts are the facts. It's it's challenging to get deals done. Financing is a whole different animal than it was you know even a year or two ago. And so for us, it's been about pivoting into something that is more practical to finance and the money is moving faster. So a lot of our time is spent on our BTR projects. And so you and I have talked about those quite a bit. BTR is a fascinating, uh, it's a very fascinating time in real estate to be able to see a whole new asset class emerge. And maybe we see that once in a career where an entirely new asset class, it's going to become a, you know, a billion, multi-billion, maybe, maybe a trillion dollar uh, asset class is, is emerging really right in front of us over the last two or three or four years. So it's very, very young. And there's a lot of things still trying to trying to sort out, you know, multifamily or or office or warehouse. Like these have been around for a while. We have lots of data. We have lots of information. Lenders know what to do. Everybody kind of knows how to handle those asset classes. And BTR for us has been really fascinating. To we started on this a couple of years ago, so we're very very early to the process, and just continuing to see insane momentum in that asset class has been really neat. 
but we were able to take what was a slowing market the last two years as interest rates went up, we started to see our, our, uh, our single family lot transactions start to drag. Projects were taking longer. Financing was more difficult. But as we pivoted those to build to rent, now things were able to pick up speed again. We were able to execute deals. So that was really key for us. And it didn't change a lot of our front end work. We're just bolting an additional value on top of the earth that we were already buying and titling, platting and doing all of those efforts. So now we're just adding a vertical component to it, which the vertical components well within my skill set anyway. So pivoting to build to rent has been giant for us. And that's going to continue to be a big push for us over the next few years as we see that asset class emerge as a real monster in, in real estate. Yeah, that's kind of what I was gonna what I was wondering there is when you do when you do single family for sale development and that's your model, mm-hmm. and then interest rates go up and so the you know the the sales slow down and then you shift over to the the build to rent. So if you're doing build to rent and you're doing single family build to rent in that space, mm-hmm. are there other things that you have to take into account when you're when you're building at that point? Because now you're actually going through the process of building, you know, you're building the homes versus just selling the lots in theory. Mm-hmm. And so are there other things or other uh well, you your background, as you said, you've you've been there, you know, and done that in that space. So it does fit in nicely to you. But I would imagine somebody else who's been doing just purely single family development, lot sales, getting into build to rent game probably is a decent leap to start doing that. Cause unless they're, yeah. unless they're, you know, subcontracting out everything, which they may do anyway. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think a lot of your listeners may be really interested in this because a, a lot of them, if they're not doing it already, they've definitely thought about it. Right. So you're already, you're already acquiring and titling, doing the horizontal work. Okay. So now we're just adding a vertical component in theory. It's not quite that simple because it's not an apples to apples scenario. We're not just taking a standard 50, 60, 70 foot single family lot, putting a house on it and renting it. It can be done, but it doesn't usually perform a best to do it that way. You've got to treat these more like horizontal apartment complexes because we need amenities. We need other things that are more important to that that person than they are to a home buyer. And from that standpoint, uh, design has become a little bit of a different element that I didn't have to do quite the same before. You know, it's all more about the horizontal layout and how things look and creating the beauty that we enjoy. But now with that vertical component, it's about how the space lives. You know, what does the what does the renter need? What does the market data say? I'm, I'm a data person. I love data and lots of inputs. So I, I love to do this type of work because I'm looking at massive amounts of data, amalgamating all that and boiling it down into, okay, what's our next step? So moving to BTR was really, I was really well suited for that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot more underwriting. There's a lot more financials that go into it. The financing element is a whole different game. You know, instead of, you know, instead of a, a five or $10 million horizontal project, that same site becomes a hundred, $120 million uh, vertical project. And so it's a, it's different, different numbers, different people in the capital space. Uh, it's a lot of different elements that have to get bolted on to the, the horizontal portion that we're already doing. I really enjoy, if I had a meeting with my architect this morning, uh, uh, earlier today about that, about design. And I've really enjoyed getting into the design part of, of BTR. And because the space is so new, you know, BTR design is, is it's going a lot of ways. And I think that we have a, a chance right now to really, it, to really put our thumbprint on BTR, at least in, uh, in the Texas markets that we work in and really establish what is good and what, uh, what is, what is exceptional in that space and to really make an impact. So I'm, I'm taking a lot of pride and joy in, in that and in the design process and building things that we think are, are very economical and, and, and can provide affordable housing. We're very passionate about it. It's definitely necessary, but at the same time, some somewhere where people want to live and something that we're extremely proud of and, uh, and glad to have put into place. So that's been a fun part of the process for me. Yeah. It's, 
it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I mean, it's been there's been a lot of multifamily over the last uh, well over the last year and a half or so or two years, and as especially as rates have started to go up, you're seeing more of a desire from you know individuals who maybe can't get into a home due to not being able to have a down payment or just rates are so high they they want to hold off and wait. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out, and maybe that will come into play in my next question of what I'm going to ask here is, uh, I, I want to look into 2024. So I already mentioned, uh, for those of you listening or watching in, that we're recording this on November 15th. So I want to put that disclaimer out there that any anything I'm asking Charles here related to some predictions for 2024, um, we don't know what's going to necessarily... Things could have happened by the time this comes out that may change a response. But um, this is going to release right about the beginning of the year. So I'd really be interested in in your thoughts on any predictions you have for the real estate market or the land development market on what you think is going to happen, uh, what we're going to see in 2024. Certainly. Yeah. Glad to share anything that I've learned. And I spend a lot of time, a big chunk of my mornings usually is about grabbing data that I can get in, in the marketplace. So that's going to be news outlets and podcasts and other items of people, other places where I think there are experts that have done a good job at gathering data. And then I gather that data and then condense it again to make good decisions for, for our business and for those around me. And there's definitely going to be a lot of really interesting things happening in 2024. So more specifically, I think that uh, for from a home builder standpoint, from a developer standpoint, the interest rate drives a lot of this. And we see that getting interest rates down into the fives is very key to making that home buying engine keep rolling. And it's been okay when, when builders have been able to buy rates down, they're doing that now. But when we are able to get the rates actually down into the fives without the builder having to buy it down, that's going to create a lot of momentum. There's going to be some pent up demand for sure. There's people right now that want to buy a home and they're just like, oh, I just don't feel comfortable about that rate. And they're going to be waiting. And also it's going to, you know, it's going to affect a lot of things in the market with, uh, you know, with financing and the cost of capital and all of those elements. So just based on what the Fed has said, they've been very specific about interest rates, and what they're going to do, and that uh, inflation's got to be below two percent before they're going to start uh, bringing rates back down. So that's the whole the whole purpose of taking the rates up is to cool inflation. And we saw a report last Friday where inflation's down around three point two percent. It had been three point seven, so that half a percent uh, decline is 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 big. The, the market really just you know just uh, relished in that uh, that data point, and I hope that, that continues. And I think that it will. The challenge here is that the Fed in 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 all of the history that we have, they've always overcorrected. And part of that's because of the lag that we have with data. A lot of the indicators are lagging. So they're, you know, three to six months behind. And so they're making decisions and then they realize, oh shit, we might've overcorrected. And that's usually how that goes because of the lagging data. So we're hoping that the Fed just looks at the information that they're seeing now and they don't overcorrect and they leave rates where they're at. Uh, we don't want to cause a, a crash scenario. We don't want, we're not going to have a 2008 situation. But we could have a mini version of that if we decided to crash the economy a little bit by taking the rates up even more. It's just slowing down the ability to get credit, and credit often makes our economy really go. Uh, so it looks like, based on what the Fed is saying, we get that inflation coming down towards the end of 24. Um, it, if you if you graph everything, it looks like those points intersect, and we get sub 2% inflation in 24. And so then they'll start taking that rate down. I don't think we're going to see notable rate differences before the end of 24, maybe Q3, uh, we'll get a quarter point or maybe half a point. And so by early 25, now we're going to see rates uh, starting to reach a point uh, where they're approaching that 5 6% for the average home buyer. That's going to bring cost of capital down for everybody. I know for us, like trying to 
trying to put uh, construction funding together on a build to rent project. It's very expensive money right now, and the market is just uncertain. So hopefully those costs start to trend down through 24 and into 25. And it looks like into 25 and uh, you know, as 25 moves on, things will get back to a, a more reasonable rate. And we should start to see the single family market pick up significantly. Well, I hope I hope you're right. I hope that's how things uh, things move through. I'm I'm be, trying to be optimistic about it as well, and and hopefully get to get to that point. But I mean, obviously, you're not just trying to be optimistic. You're using data, so. Um, well, I I will interject though. I think it's it for me. It's been very interesting to to see. I, I remember in 2008, and a lot of people listening to this will have have had some pain point in 2008. It was shit sucked. It was bad. It was pretty rough for a lot of us, and I felt at that time. That I didn't have good information. I, I just felt like, wow, where did this come from? I, you know, I, I didn't know this was coming. And I was, you know, I was young and I just didn't understand the significance of knowing what's going on around me as a business owner. Um, you know, at that time I had a responsibility to get that information and I didn't do it. And I got caught uh, in a bad situation and, and I had to, to make a significant life change at that time. Now it feels like I have all the information I need and it almost feels like this whole thing is happening very slowly. And I'm, I can be very proactive. So I think as business owners and in the development space, it just behooves us to 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 be in to be in places where this information is is handy, where we can grab it and amalgamate it quickly and make good decisions for all the people that we affect. Yeah, no, very well said. Well, I think with that said, um, I think that brings us to a close here. And uh, just want to say thanks again for joining and. For people listening in, what's the best way for them to connect with you or to find out more about uh, some of the things that you have going on? Awesome. Yeah. So we have our website, lambestdev.com. Also, you can catch me on Instagram at Charles Covey. I post a lot of videos. Uh, It's just fun for me to post videos about what's going on in the economy and different indicators and things that I see. So as I learn different things about about the market and about money and about about development, I put those on Instagram. That's a fun thing. Uh, us to all interface. So, so add me on there and, uh, and leave some comments and questions. We'd love to interface with you guys. Awesome. Well, don't forget to uh, like and subscribe on the show. And if you're watching on uh, YouTube and if you're on any of the podcasting platforms, make sure you click that subscribe button. Would really appreciate it. Uh, also, if you could consider leaving us a review if you've been around a little bit. Um, with that said, that's all we've got for this episode. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. 